church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of God. Hola, buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. Great to be back with you this week. That intro song was Traces of Jesus by Dan Duet. I had the pleasure and honor of meeting Dan Duet at the San Antonio Men's Conference. And it was a great conference. Dan played the music there, and he provided me with uh, CDs of his work and great artists. So I highly encourage you to check him out. You can find a link to Dan's website at my site at www.catholichack.com. It was an honor and a privilege to speak to the Catholic men of San Antonio, Texas. It was hosted by the Pilgrim Center of Hope. And it was a great day. There was uh, better speakers than I, for sure. Father George Montague was there. Father John Jesus Maloney and Father Leo Petalinhug all did a phenomenal job and gave some very riveting talks. And uh, I'll be sharing uh, my talk, which was uh, From Slavery to Sonship, Free at Last, on my website at catholichack.com. But, you know, it was just really motivating and an exciting opportunity to, uh, to share the grace of God in our lives. And I, and I gave my testimony of how God saved me from a lifetime of addiction to pornography and sexual license. And I used the story of the prodigal son, which we spoke of last week, to really set the stage and give us the boundary of, of God's great grace and mercy. And we see that in the confessional. And, and that's what we talked about last week. But there is another layer 
to that story, that parable in Luke chapter 15. And we're going to touch on that, and then we're going to dive straight into John chapter 4 and the woman at the well. But before we do that, let us begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory and honor and grace and blessing be to you, Almighty God and Father. You are a God of mercy. You are Abba, Father. You are our Daddy, our Papa. You are so intimate to your wayward children. And we thank you for your graces. We thank you for the sacraments that bring us your true presence into our life. That encounter with Christ Jesus, our Lord, who was lifted up, that we might know the sweetness of the love of the Father. I ask you to come down upon with your Holy Spirit upon this show today that those who listen might experience your great love and mercy and grace and your glory alone be made manifest. I pray for all who seek you, all who are lost, all who are desperate, all who are confused and see nothing of your love in this world. They see only hate and anger and darkness Shed light in that dark world, Holy Father, today. And I ask our Blessed Mother, our dear Mother, your handmaiden, to pray for us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as I said last time, we spoke of the parable of the prodigal son, which is found in St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, starting in verse 11 to the end of the chapter. And what I shared with the men was um, the sweetness of God's mercy. And I just truly love that verse, fifteen, uh, chapter 15, verse 2, when it says, that this man receives sinners and eats with them. That is exactly what happens at the sacred and most holy mass. Our Lord receives us, his spouse, and gives to us his body that we might join together with our bridegroom, the one flesh union where we receive our Lord, his whole flesh, his whole body, his whole blood, his whole spirit, his divinity. We receive it all when we say, Amen. And then we take him onto our tongue. We are joined because God proclaims himself to be the husband of his people. That is a theme that we will just have to touch upon today, but that is a very profound theme throughout all of the Old Testament, and we will see that sort of bubble up in John chapter 4 as we get to that. And so we read this parable of the prodigal son as we did last week, and we think immediately of our own lives and how we are prodigal sons and daughters of the Father. I know I am, and I'm sure you can feel the same way. 
So we relate this in a very real and tangible and practical way. But but a scripture is is made up of many layers, as the Catechism of the Catholic Church explains. And one of those layers, one of those realities of this particular passage is not as much related to our personal lives as it relates to the lives of the chosen people of God, the Israelites. You see, we are told there at the very beginning of chapter 15 that Jesus heard the murmurings of the Pharisees and the scribes. And they are the ones who say, this man receives sinners and then eats with them. Why? Because in verse 1, he says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And these Pharisees and these scribes, they had a real problem with Jesus, you know, hanging out with all the tax collectors and the sinners. You see, the Pharisees were righteous people. They obeyed the law to the T. And they were without sin in their own minds. It was those tax collectors, those sinners, those harlots that they couldn't stand. And how, why Jesus, if he was this Messiah, if he was the one sent from God, a prophet even, why he would be hanging out with sinners, well, pff, I'll never know. Well, what we do know is we are told that in verse 6 of that chapter, it says, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus was speaking to the heart of the Pharisees. I tell you, Mr. Righteousness. It's those sinners. One of those sinners who comes home, just one, all of heaven rejoices because the sheep was lost and now is found. And as the prodigal son is in that, that parable, as his father in that parable says, my son was dead and now is alive. This parable serves a very specific purpose in the life of Israel. You see, um, Israel broke up, the kingdom of Israel. Once King Solomon died after reigning on the throne for 40 years, you see, he laid up heavy burdens upon the people of Israel. All of the tribes in Israel, the ones to the north, and the ten tribes to the north and the two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin, all of these tribes had to send their taxes to Jerusalem, where King Solomon ruled from. And he laid up heavy burdens upon them because he was building the house of God. And so all these taxes were, were brought into the kingdom's treasury and, and then spent on all these building projects. Well, when King Solomon died, his son took possession of the throne. And so the Israelites, the ten tribes to the north, came to see their king and said, you know, 40 years of all this heavy taxation is really kind of too much. It's time to, to, you know, scale it back. And what do you say, king? Do you, do you mind giving us some relief from all these heavy taxes? And so what the new king say? Did he say, sure, you know, I understand, no problem, we'll see what we can do. No, instead he says, my father's loins don't compare even to my pinky finger. 
In other words, he says, you think my father was tough? You wait to see what I do. I will not shrink the tax. I will increase the tax burden. Well, this set off a civil war in the kingdom of Israel. And the ten tribes to the north seceded, basically, from the two tribes to the south. And so it left Judah and Benjamin all by themselves. And so the Israelites to the north kept the term Israelite to describe themselves. Whereas the southerns, it was now the Jewish nation. It was the Jews. And so this sets up this this uh, troubling time. Well, what the problem is the the tribes to the north, they didn't remain true to the covenant relationship that God established with his people Israel. They fell away. They become harlots. They started to intermarry these pagan cultures, not completely always by their fault, but because of their their um, disrespect for the covenant, because they turned away, because they lacked the, the, the ability to, to maintain it, because of their adultery, you know, turning away from God and, and consorting with pagan idolatry. The Assyrians, God allowed the Assyrians in the 8th century BC to come down and decimate the 10 tribes to the north. And the the practice of the Assyrians was to, to take their conquered peoples, uproot them, and force them out in, to live in other lands, and then take other conquered peoples, and then resettle them in this land. And so the Assyrians brought in five different conquered peoples to come in to this land. And there they brought their five different pagan gods, their Baals, and they were forced to intermarry to what was left of the Israelites, the ten tribes to the north. And so the Jews saw their their brothers, their fellow Israelite brothers, the, what was left of their ten tribes, as being repugnant to them because they were harlots. They had betrayed God. They turned to these idols. And now they were intermarrying this mongrel race, as Dr. Scott Hahn likes to, like to say. They were a mongrel hybrid breed of what was formerly the Israelite people. Now they are these uh, pagan idol Baal worshipers with their five Baal gods. So this sets the stage for when Jesus uh, enters the scene, when the Messiah comes, he sees this division between the the Jews to the south and the Israelites, or what would be called the Samaritans uh, to the north, Ephraim, really. And in fact, Jeremiah uh, talks about the mercy of God and how how the, the people to the north repent and try to come back, and the Father actually takes them back. You see, as we said, the Assyrians uprooted these people, took this people on a journey into a far-off country by uprooting them and planting them into far-off foreign conquered countries, just like the younger son in the parable of the prodigal son who takes his, his possession. He almost wishes his father dead, takes his inheritance, and then goes off into a journey into a far-off country where he becomes fully paganized because he squanders his, his property in loose living. And there he, he uh, becomes a destitute and a, a famine arises and he joins himself to the citizens of that country, to a particular citizen of that country who then sends him into his field to to feed the swine. This is, again, repugnant behavior uh, to the Israelites' Uh, the, the covenant relationship. You see, the pig was an unclean animal. And so for a, an Israelite 
to be anywhere near a pig is just repugnant. It's just vile. It's, it, it strikes at the core of who they are, the core of what they believe. And he was so desperate that he had to feed the pigs. And he, he actually longed to, to eat what the pigs ate because he had nothing. And he, then he starts to come to his senses and he starts to see, you know, my father, even his hired servants eat better and live better than I'm living now because I have joined myself to the citizen of this far off country, this pagan. I can't even keep the Sabbath and I feed the pigs. It's his lowest point ever. And then he desires to come back to his father and there beg his father's mercy. And in Jeremiah chapter 30, starting in verse 18, we see how our Lord keeps this in mind when he's telling this parable. He says, quote, in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 18, quote, I have heard Ephraim bemoaning, thou hast chastened me and I was chastened like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored. For thou art the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I repented. And after I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded. Because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. Just like the the, prodigal, the father and the prodigal son parable. Just like the father, when he sees his son coming, he, he runs, he has compassion on him. And he falls upon his neck, kissing him. And he says, what? He doesn't even allow his son to, to finish spitting out the whole, you know, rehearsed line of, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. He doesn't even get to finish the sentence. The father says, send for the robe. Bring me the best robe and put it on my son. Clothe my son in his mercy. Put a ring on his finger. Like Joseph in the land of Egypt, who became the second in command in, in the kingdom of the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh put his signet ring upon Joseph's hand so that all would know that this man, Joseph, bears the image of the king or the father of the people. And so the father in this parable says, put a ring on his finger so that all will know that this man is my son. He bears the image of his father and put shoes on his feet because only slaves walk around barefoot. I restore him to sonship like Ephraim in Jeremiah 30, 18 through 20. Ephraim, who is, by the way, the youngest of the 12 in the Genesis narrative. He is the the nephew of Judah, and the youngest brother in the tribal family of Israel. And you can find that on Genesis chapter 48, verse 14. So Ephraim, representing the northern ten tribes, the, the Israelites, Ephraim, this younger of the sons, and Judah, the older of the sons, the Pharisees are representing Judah in this parable. And it's the ten tribes, the Israelites, who are represented by the younger sons. 
the younger son in this parable, who repents, who comes to its senses and comes back and repents and begs the father for mercy. And the father gives it to him, restoring him to sonship. But the older son in this parable has a problem with that. You know, he he comes back from his work in the fields and says, what, what, what is this? The party is going on. And his father has to come out and say, son, you were always with me. Everything I have is yours, but your brother... He was lost, and now he is found. He was dead, and now he is alive. This is Jesus speaking to the heart of those Pharisees. There in chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, he's speaking to the heart of these Pharisees. You who are righteous need to have mercy upon the sinners. You have the chair of Moses, as we read in St. Matthew's Gospel. You must live by example. You must teach by example. So he's trying to tell these Pharisees that they are representing in this story, they are representing the tribe of Judah. And it's Ephraim, the younger son to the north, the ten tribes who are represented in this, in this parable, that they come together again in full restoration. Jesus, in his love and his mercy, brings forth this story of God the Father loving his two sons, restoring the family of God. Now, what's interesting is we see this actually playing itself out on the other side of this coin. Now that we've seen this being told to the the people of uh, Judah, uh, now he's going to do this to the people of Samaria or the ten tribes. He's going to go there and he's going to give them a similar experience. And we read about this in John's Gospel, St. John's Gospel, chapter 4. Now it says, quote, Now when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sikar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, actually, he didn't actually have to go through Samaria. Most people, most Jews who needed to go to the south, or to the north, rather, to Galilee, they went around Samaria. Because, again, back in the uh, 8th century BC, the, the, the northern tribes were decimated by Assyria, and they were intermingled with these ten, or these five, rather, pagan uh, cultures who brought their pagan Baals, their their five pagan Baals, which is a Hebrew word meaning my lord or my husband. For instance, Abraham, who had a concubine, uh, his, his concubine referred to him as my Baal, but Sarah referred to him as, you know, her husband or her her, her love, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a difference there. One is intimate, one is much more formal and, and um, appropriate. Concubines, they don't have true husbands. They have lords or masters, really. And so they brought their five Baals, their masters, their pagan gods, and they intermarried with these ten northern tribes of, of Israel. And so they brought about idolatrous worship, and they intermixed that. And so these 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 Israelites in Samaria had a mixture of 
true worship to the one true Father, the one God and His covenant, mixed in with some pagan idolatrous worship. And that was all done there on Mount Gerizim, where they actually had a, a temple, a sanctuary, where they offered up these sacrifices. But that too was destroyed around 128 BC, I think. And so, uh, Jews avoided Samaria because they, they, they were repulsed by this whole situation and this, this division between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so they would always go around. But our Lord, no, 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 no. He never hides in a bush. He never runs the other way. He never avoids even a very difficult situation. He meets it head on. He faces it eye to eye. And so he goes right up through Samaria and happens to stop at a well there in this town of Sakar. At around noon, by the way. And so he says, I'll, I'll back up to verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, the sixth hour is noon. So here our Lord, Jesus, is at a well at noontime. And it says, quote, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, the word for living here can also mean flowing water. So which is it? Is it living water or flowing water? Now, remember, he's at a well with this woman at noontime. And the, and the well is obviously stagnant. It's, it's, uh, it's not flowing, and it, it certainly ain't living. Or There actually might be lots of things living in the water, like bacteria, for example, but it ain't flowing water, which is, which is obviously uh, more healthy or more favorable. You would prefer flowing water because it won't have so many um, uh, debris in it or bacteria or anything like that. But, so that's where they are right now. Which is it? Is it living or flowing water? He says, quote, verse 11, The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself, and his sons, and his cattle? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Now, real quick, the fact that he's at this well at noon with a woman is very significant. Why? Because there are other key, key characters who are at wells and they receive their spouse. Now, for example, Isaac, his spouse was found at a well. That's Genesis 24.10. Jacob, his spouse was found at a well. That's Genesis 29.1-30. How about Moses in Exodus 2? His wife was found at a well at noon. So the fact that Jesus is at a well with a woman is hugely significant at noon. 
This is a marital image because our Lord is the bridegroom and his people are the spouse. And on many levels, on many different uh, levels of scripture and and, uh, understanding, we can understand that our Lord wishes to wed us all. He is seeking the salvation of all, but he is trying to restore the people set aside by God, the people of Israel. He's trying to restore them. And he, he's, he's gone and he spoke to those Pharisees. Now he's coming and he's speaking to the, the Israelites, the, the Samaritans, the people of the ten tribes and what's left of them. And he goes on to say in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you truly, this you said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You see, it's not that she was just uh, living loose and all that. No, she represents the people of Israel, the ten tribes, who had five Baals, five masters. She is the concubine to five men. And the one she is now with, i.e. Jesus there at the well, you're right, he is not your husband because you have been unfaithful to him. Like the prophet Hosea who was commanded to marry a harlot by God. Why? So that he would know what it's like to be God, to 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 feel what God feels with his people. This woman represents the Israelites and God has mercy because he's come to wed them. He's come to bring them back. He's come to restore them. And it leads to this woman not only being accepted back, but then going and telling her whole village that this man has come. This is the Messiah who has come and told me everything I've ever done. He's come to restore the people of God in his great mercy. I wish I had more time, but we're out of time. Stop by the website, find the links, find the information. Until next time, I'm praying for you, so please pray for me. May God richly bless you. From the Catholic Underground.